association with Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode four of Ancient Rome Refocused. I understand we have had over 120,000 downloads of these podcasts. I hope it's enjoyable as well as informative. In this episode, we will explore and study the Roman triumph. We have a very special guest, Mr. Stephen Saylor, the writer of the Roma Sub Rosa mystery series that takes place in the ancient Rome of Caesar and Cicero. We will interview him later in the show. This podcast is titled, Save Me a Seat at the Triumph, and Let's Throw a Cabbage at the Gaul. The following reading is with the permission of the author. It comes from the book, The Triumph of Caesar, by Stephen Saylor. This was the day of the first of Caesar's four triumphs. Even before we re-entered the city by the Escaline Gate, I could hear a dull roar from within the walls. When every man, woman, and child in Rome has caused to be out of doors at the same time, all talking to one another at once, the whole city hums like a beehive. Such a buzzing seemed to emanate from every quarter of the city, but it grew noticeably louder as we drew near the forum. Everyone was in the streets, wearing their brightest holiday attire. How my family stood up, all garbed in black. Everyone was headed for the same place, drawn toward the heart of the hubbub. Amid the contagious excitement, Bethesda and Diana completely forgot their inattention to return to the auction at the House of Beats. Impatient to witness the spectacle, Mopsus and Androcles repeatedly ran ahead and then circled back, entreating the rest of us to hurry. We reached the Forum. The doors of every temple stood open, inviting the people to visit the gods and the gods to witness the day's events. Garlands of flowers decorated every shrine and statue. Incense burned on every altar, filling the air with a sweet fragrance. When a man has lived in a place as long as I have lived in Rome, he learns a few of the city's secrets. I happen to know the best vantage point for watching a triumph. While other latecomers pressed towards the front of the crowd, stood on tiptoes or gazed enviously at those who had arrived early to find seats among the stands, I led the family to the Temple of Fortuna built by Lucullus. At the side of the temple, an easy climb along the branch of an olive tree allowed access to a recessed marble shelf along one wall, just deep enough and wide enough for my entire family to sit if we huddled close together. 
Even an old fellow like me could make the ascent with no trouble, and my reward was a comfortable perch above the heads of the crowd below, with a perfect view of the procession along the sacred way. Just as we were, we must have looked like a flock of ravens roosting on the little outcrop of marble. A roar erupted as Bethesda was settling herself beside me. We were just in time to see the beginning of the parade. Following tradition, the procession began with the senators. They were usually 300 in number. The body had been greatly depleted by the Civil War, but new appointments by Caesar had replenished the ranks. Dressed in their togas with red borders, the senators flowed down the sacred way like a river of white flecked with crimson. For many of the newcomers, this occasion marked their first public appearance. I could pick out the new senators by how stiffly they adopted the politician's standard pose, one hand clutching the folds of the toga, the other raised to wave to the crowd. These included, either appropriately or ironically, considering the occasion, a number of Gaelic chieftains who had allied themselves with Caesar. Not one of them sported long hair or a giant's mustache. They were as well-groomed as their Roman colleagues, still keeping them together in a group. They were easy to spot by their stature. The Gauls towered above the Sea of White. Cicero and Brutus, who were usually the type to put themselves out front, marched near the back of the contingent. They strode with their heads close together, conversing, as if more interested in each other's company than what was happening around them. Their attitude seemed almost deliberately disrespectful of the occasion. What were those two talking about? Next in the procession came the white oxen that would be sacrificed on the altar before the temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline, attended by the priests who would slaughter them, bearing their ceremonial knives. The oxen had gilded horns, brightly colored fillets of twisted wool on their heads, and garlands of flowers around their necks. Following were the camellii, the specifically chosen boys and girls who would attend the priests, carrying the shallow libation bowls in which they would receive the blood and the organs of the sacrificed oxens. Other members of the priesthoods followed, wearing long robes and mantles over their heads. This included the keepers of the Sibylline books, the augurs responsible for divination, the flamens devoted to various deities, and the priests who maintained the calendar and reckoned sacred dates. Next came a band of trumpeters blaring the ancient summons to arms as if a hostile enemy approached. In fact, behind the trumpeters, an enemy did approach, the captive chiefs of the conquered Gauls. There were a great many of these prisoners. The Gauls were divided into scores of tribes, and Caesar had subdued them all. These once proud warriors were dressed in rags, they shambled forward with their heads bowed, chained to one another. The crowd laughed and cheered and pelted them with rotten fruit. At their head was Vercingetorix. He was, as I had seen him, in the Tolanium, nearly naked and covered with filth, but his appearance was even more appalling under bright sunlight. His eyes were hollow, his lips were dry and cracked, his hair and his beard were as tangled as a bird's nest, 
His fingernails were like claws. So long they had begun to curl. His shoes had disintegrated while he walked. Bits of shredded leather trailed from his ankles, and each step left a bloody footprint on the paving stones. Confused and exhausted, he suddenly came to a halt. A soldier, pacing alongside the prisoners, like a herd dog, ran up and struck him with a whip. The crowd roared. Fight back, Carl, somebody yelled. Show us what you're made of. King of the Gauls? King of the Cowards? Vercingetorix lurched forward and almost fell. One of the other chieftains reached out to steady him. The soldier struck the man across the face and sent him reeling back. Spectators cheered and clapped and jumped up and down with excitement. The chastened prisoners quickened their pace. A moment later, they passed beyond my sight. Bethesda touched my arm and gave me a sympathetic look. I realized I was gripping the edge of the shelf so firmly that my knuckles had turned white. So this was the end of Vercingetorix. For him, the day would end where it began, back at the Tolanium, where he would be lowered into the pit and strangled. In quick succession, the other chieftains would meet the same fate. There would be no last-minute rescue. There would not be even a final show of defiance or pride or anger, only submission and silence. He had been broken to the ultimate degree that could still leave him breathing and able to walk. Caesar's torturers were exquisitely skilled at obtaining exactly what they wanted from a victim, and Vercingetorix had proved no exception. Next came musicians and a troop of mincing minds who mocked the chieftains who had just passed. The tension aroused in the crowd by the sight of their enemies melted into screams of laughter. The mine who played Vercingetorix recognizable by a ludicrously oversized version of the warrior's famous winged helmet, which almost swallowed his head, confronted a mime meant to be Caesar, to judge by his glittering armor and red cape. Their mock sword fight, attended by a great deal of buffoonery, excited squeals of laughter from the children, watching and ending when the Caesar mime appeared to plunge his sword up the fundament of the Vercingetorix mine, who first gave a high-pitched scream, then cocked his head to one side, and started rolling his hips as if he enjoyed the penetration. The crowd loved this. Dancers, musicians, and a chorus of singers followed. People clapped their hands and sang along to the marching songs they had learned from their grandparents. Onward, Roman soldiers! For Jupiter you fight! The way of Rome is forward. The cause of Rome is right. Next came the spoils of war. Specially made wagons, festooned with garlands, were loaded with the captured armor of the enemy. Superbly crafted breastplates, helmets, and shields were mounted for display. The grandest wagon was reserved for the armor and weapons of Vercingetorix. The crowd applauded the sight of his famous bronzed helmet, with massive feathered wings on either side. There was also a display of his personal belongings, including a signet ring for sealing documents, his private drinking cup of silver and horn, a fur cloak made from a bear he himself had killed, and even a pair of his boots, crafted of fine leather and tooled with intricate Celtic designs. 
More wagons rolled by, carrying captured booty from every corner of Gaul, artfully displayed so that the crowd could take in each object as it slowly passed by. There were silver goblets and pitchers and vases, richly embroidered fabrics, woven goods with patterns never before seen in Rome, magnificent garments made of fur, elaborately wrought bronze lamps, copper bracelets, torques and armbands made of gold, and clasps and pins and brooches set with gemstones of remarkable size and color. There were bronze and stone statues, crude by Greek or Roman standards, depicting the strange gods who had failed to protect the Gauls. More wagons passed, stuffed with coffers overflowing with gold and silver coins and bullion. At the sight of so much Luger, people gasped with excitement and their eyes glittered with greed. Word had spread that Caesar intended to distribute a considerable portion of the captured wealth of Gaul to the people of Rome. Every citizen could expect to receive at least 300 sesterces. We would all profit from the pillaging of Gaul. As impressive as these displays of bullion and jewels and metalwork, the human booty of Gaul far exceeded its other plundered wealth. Caesar had gone to war on borrowed money, but from the sale of humans he had become phenomenally wealthy. His enslavement of the population had taken place on a vast scale. In his memoirs, he boasted of selling over 50,000 of the Atuchi tribe alone. In celebration of this achievement, a small sampling of the most striking of Caesar's captives were presented by the hundreds, with hands chained behind their backs and constrained by the shackles on their ankles to take baby steps, giant warriors with long red mustaches and naked youths with flowing locks shuffled past, their heads hung in shame. Looking even more miserable, a seemingly endless succession of beautiful girls draped in sheer veils were made to prance and twirl for the amusement of the crowd. These slaves would be sold at a special auction the next day. Their display in the triumph was a preview for interested buyers. Those who cannot afford such exquisite merchandise could at least stare at them with amazement and be proud that Caesar had made slaves of such outstanding human specimens. Having satisfied the crowd's prurient interest in death, greed and lust, showing off the doomed and humiliated leaders, then the magnificent spoils of war, then an assortment of the flesh made available for purchase, thanks to Caesar, the procession continued with its educational component. The crowd was shown a series of painted placards made of cloth stretched across wooden frames. Some of these placards, mounted on poles, were small enough to be held aloft by a single man, but others were quite large and required several men to carry them. Placards proclaimed the name of every vanquished tribe and captured city. Accompanying these were models of the most famous cities and forts of the Gauls, crafted from wood and ivory. More placards depicted notable features of the Gaelic landscape, its rivers and mountains, its forests and bays. Other placards were painted with vivid scenes of the war, in which Caesar was usually at the center, mounted on top his white charger and wearing his red cape. <laughs> 
Speakers recited vivid episodes from Caesar's memoirs, extolling his own ingenuity and the bravery of the Roman legions. Large models of siege towers rolled by, along with actual battering rams, catapults, ballistae, and other machines of conquest, with signs identifying the battles in which they had been used. In his campaign against the Gauls, Caesar and his engineers had greatly advanced the science of war. The many battles and sieges had allowed them to perfect new methods of inflicting mayhem and death, and here were the artifacts of the unstoppable war machine that had crushed not only the Gauls, but also every one of Caesar's rivals. Next, marching in single file, came Caesar's private bodyguard. As the multitude of armed lictors went by, their numbers seemingly endless, the crowd gradually ceased its raucous cheering and grew quiet. Long ago, Romulus had surrounded himself with lictors, each bearing an axe to protect the person of the king and a bundle of rods to scourge anyone who defied him. When the monarchy gave way to the Republic, the Senate assigned lictors to the consuls and other magistrates to protect them during their term of office. Despite their perpetually grim expressions and the fearsome weapons they carried, there was nothing alarming about the mere sight of a band of lictors, one saw them every day crossing the forum. What made the crowd uneasy that day, I think, was the sheer number of lictors. Never had I seen so many at one time. Not even the ancient kings had given themselves such a vast bodyguard. Even the most oblivious citizen was made to realize, by the sight of so many victors, the unprecedented status that Caesar had claimed for himself. Sobered by the parade of victors, the crowd broke into a deafening roar when Caesar appeared. I saw the four snow-white horses first, tossing their proud heads and splendid manes, then caught a first glimpse of the golden ceremonial chariot. Caesar was wearing the traditional costume, embroidered with palm leaves over which was draped a gold-embroidered toga. A wreath of laurel leaves covered his receding hairline. In his right hand, he held a laurel bough, and in his left... A scepter. A slave stood behind him, holding above Caesar's head a golden crown, ornamented with jewels. While I watched, the slave leaned forward and whispered in Caesar's ear. No doubt he was reciting the ancient formula. Remember, you are mortal. The reminder was not meant to humble the triumphant general, but to avert the so-called evil eye, the damage that could be inflicted by the gaze of the envious. Other talismans attached to the chariot served the same purpose. A tinkling bell, a scourge, and placed in a hidden spot underneath by the Vestal Virgins, the phallic amulet called the Fascinium. The higher man rose, the more protection he required against the evil eye. Behind Caesar I saw the troops that followed, the foremost on horseback, and behind them, carrying military standards and spears adorned with laurel leaves, a great multitude of the legionnaires who had served in Gaul. Now just as Caesar was passing before us, I heard a cracking noise, so sharp and loud that Mopsus and Androcles covered their ears. The ceremonial chariot lurched to a halt. Caesar was thrown violently forward. The slave holding the crown tumbled against him. The white horses clattered their hooves against the paving stones, tossed their heads and whinnied. My heart pounded in my chest. I felt an icy trickle down my spine. What was happening? The nearest lictors turned and ran back to the chariot. Some of the officers on horseback sharply reined their mounts, but others bolted forward to see what was happening with looks of alarm. Caesar was hidden from sight by the bodyguards and officers swarming around him. 
confusion spread among the spectators, I felt a sinking sensation. Calpurnia was right after all, I thought. There was a plot on Caesar's life, and now it was playing out right before my eyes. You've been listening to Ancient Rome Refocused, and now back to your host, Rob Kane. Have you ever been lucky enough to go to a triumph? I mean an honest-to-goodness Roman triumph. Well, of course not. No one has had that honor for a long time. You would need a time machine for that one, but I do believe that many of you have been to something similar. If not in person, I know you've seen one on TV or in the movies. Today we call it a different name. It is called a victory parade. Ever celebrate your favorite sports team winning? That's a Roman triumph. The White Sox, a Southside team, celebrated a World Series championship for the first time since World War I, beating the Astros 1-0 Wednesday night for a four-game sweep. That was in 2005. This is not just a sports team winning. It's more than that. A sports team that wins the World Series is a big deal. It's a city that has won the World Series. And sometimes it's a neighborhood. And that's even a bigger deal. The White Sox are closely associated with Chicago's South Side, and it's not unusual for the celebration to last long into the night. Winning a World Series and in Chicago, especially in Chicago, it's time to party. This was recorded at 1.45 a.m. State and Rush and Cedar Street. People hung out of cars. It was pouring rain, but no one cared. Cars honked. People screamed. Everyone was giving each other the high five. Didn't matter if you knew them or not. This was personal. For our friends overseas, what was it like in your time when your favorite soccer team won? I bet it was the same way. In Chicago, it was a Southside win, a working man's win. The White Sox were given a parade down Michigan Avenue. I was there, by the way. But let's jump back to 1865. In Washington, D.C., another Roman triumph took place. This was called the Grand Review of Armies. And no, I was not there. But, boy, I sure would have liked to have been that darn time machine problem again. The Grand Review took place over two days on March 23rd and the 24th. It was conducted to change the mood of a city that was still reeling from the shooting of Abraham Lincoln at Ford's Theater. Three federal armies arrived in D.C. to take part. The soldiers camped around the city and got into verbal sparring in the taverns, and even fistfights broke out. Everyone believes it was their regiment that won the war. Even General Sherman was there and made sure his Western Army stood out by ordering that every button, bayonet, and piece of brass was shined to perfection. The Western Army had a reputation of being tough, but not a reputation for spit and polish. At 9 a.m., 80,000 men were led down Pennsylvania Avenue 12 men across. 
followed by divisions, corps, and regiments. It is estimated that the line of troops stretched out for seven miles. For six hours, the troops passed the White House. Six hours of blue uniforms as far as the eye could see. And like a triumph, where the spoils of the defeated enemy follows behind the victorious army, a vast herd of cattle and livestock, taken from the south, followed behind the troops. There was no gold, no silver and booty to place upon ox carts. The south was tapped out, drained of its riches from a protracted war. In ancient times, in the times of the Roman triumph, oxen were escorted in the prey to be sacrificed to the glory of Jupiter. This cattle would no doubt be sacrificed for the glory of the dinner table. Now, the people of the 1860s were quite familiar with ancient Rome. Whether the inclusion of the cattle in the parade was tipping their hat to the Romans of ancient times, I have no idea. Now let's jump forward. Let's go to the victory parade after World War II in New York City. No, I was not there either. This was like a triumph too, a big and glorious one. This was to celebrate victory over the Nazis. The following is from a story in Time Magazine published January 21st, 1946. I choose to read it for it is beautiful in the telling, but the author expresses it in such a way you can almost feel like you were actually there. Quote, Ahead, as the far as the eye could see, the black pavement of Fifth Avenue lay smooth and empty between the towers of Manhattan. Millions of people jammed along the sidewalks and stood waiting to welcome the 82nd Airborne Division. On 42nd Street below, under the massive gray Washington Arch, 13,000 waited too. The division's proud, rugged commander, tall, slender, 38-year-old Major General James Slim Jim Gavin, marched out into the avenue. The 82nd's bayonet-tipped phalanxes moved out behind him, and the cold wind sent a contagious roar of applause rolling for miles throughout the great city. The U.S. Army was parading again in victory. The 82nd Airborne had come a long way, hard way, to 5th Avenue, and the honor of marching for all U.S. foot soldiers, living and dead, who had walked through the mud of World War II. They had jumped and fought from Casablanca to Berlin. Now in the biggest U.S. victory parade, they marched as though they heard the bugles of Gettysburg and Little Big Horn and San Juan Hills sounding with their bands. For a mile after mile, the crowds cheered, whistled, sometimes wept. In mid-Manhattan, blizzards of ticker tape and torn paper fluttered from the buildings. Paper streamers caught on bayonets and clung to uniforms, but not a soldier's hand was raised. There was little music. For spaces of half an hour at a time, there was only the scuffing cadence of polished boots, the applause, the window-rattling thunder of newly painted Sherman tanks, of 45-ton self-propelled 8-inch howitzers, of long-toms, jeeps, and ambulances. When it was over, an odd jubilance seemed to possess the dissolving crowds, as though they had seen some greatness in themselves mirrored out in the street. At the reviewing stand, Slim Jim Gavin, relaxing at last, touched thumb and forefinger lightly into a circle to tell what he thought of the men who had marched behind him. End of quote. 
Now let's jump forward to 1986. This is a different kind of triumph, an overdue one, an unexpected one. Was I there for this one? I sure was. In Chicago, 200,000 marchers took part in a welcome home parade 11 years after a war ended. The word victory was not used. It was, after all, Vietnam. And this was a war that many said America lost. Well, that is open to interpretation. Though American forces were never beaten in any land battle, including the Tet Offensive, look it up by the way, American resolve could not prop up the government of South Vietnam to stand on its own against northern aggression. The U.S. public wanted the war to end. This parade was not for victory, but for the recognition of the veteran that took part in it. Were there protests? Not today. Today it was different. Today the veterans that marched were cheered by over 500,000 spectators. Think about it. 500,000. This march had a twist. Paintings and enlarged photos were carried by relatives through the streets. In this parade, not only soldiers, but wives, aunts, mothers, fathers, carried the photos of sons that had been lost in the conflict. What's more, lost after the conflict due to alcohol, drugs, and depression. As they passed cameras from local and national news stations, the images of these young men were shown, still young, still vibrant, still at the beginning of life, and at the sides of the parade they stopped momentarily to say, This is my son. He could not be here today. In the Chicago Tribune, a poet and veteran of that war is quoted as saying, If I was to write a love poem today, I don't know what I'd say, but I would mail it to Chicago. After that war, these men did not return as a unit like they do today. They returned individually. Generals and family members were not meeting them at the airport. Veteran groups were not meeting their planes at the gate to shake their hands and say, Thank you for a job well done. This was a war where men came back alone and re-entered their neighborhoods quietly. Where they had been was not discussed, except among others who had been there as well. Their experience were discussed with only those that understood. But today, the uniforms came out, sometimes whole, but mostly in patches, in parts, but still recognizable. See, see, you could hear them say, this is who we were. We have come home today. Today we have come home. Now let's jump forward again. Let's go to 1991. It is at the conclusion of the Gulf War, the war that was shorter than expected, a war that made all of America breathe a sigh of relief. It had been a long time since we could celebrate an unquestioned victory. This has the taste and feel of a real triumph. And yes, I was around to see this one as well. General Colin Powell, at the time chairman of the Joint Chiefs, rode in an open car down Michigan Avenue, a modern version of a white chariot, a white convertible Cadillac and horses as well, but well contained symbolically as horsepower under the hood. A woman runs out from the sidewalk and is stopped by a Chicago policeman. She takes a picture of General Powell, waves at him. He waves back and she shouts, I love you! Units from all over the Midwest gathered and marched under their own version of a triumphal arch. For in Roman days, there was the Arch of Titus where troops paraded underneath, but here it was something different. A slight hint of what it was in the old days, an arch, many arches of a kind, 
helium-filled blooms. Trapped in what is called bunting and arched over Michigan Avenue, many arches in red, white, and blue swayed in the wind as those honored marched underneath. Over 100 marching units took part in that day, marching along a mile-long route down Michigan Avenue. Included in the number of troops were active duty and reserve troops, high-stepping high school bands, junior ROTC units, and Gulf War and Vietnam veterans. Roman triumphs had displays of weapons, ballistas that broke down the walls of enemy citadels. In this march, the Patriot missiles that defended against the Soviet-made scuds is driven down the street on a launcher system. A sign on the driver's door said the following, Scud Buster. Let's leave Chicago and look at Washington, D.C. Let's see what's going on there. Humvees, the Army's four-wheeled vehicles, Cobra helicopters, and Harriet jets are on display in the National Mall. People gawk and touch the weapons that brought victory, what one person described as a military petting zoo. In Roman times, rich men donated to the triumph to gain favor. Today is no different. Donations of close to $5 million and an additional influx of $7 million in taxpayers' money made the day possible. In ancient times, people feasted, the meals paid for by wealthy citizens of the city. During the celebrations for Desert Storm in the District of Columbia, rich and poor had enough money to buy one of the thousands of hot dogs available for the Day of the Parade. There were many triumphs being celebrated across the country, in many cities and in many towns. The tradition is familiar and does not change other than the uniforms, music, and language. The message is always the same. We survived. We won. Our loved ones are home. Now let's bury the dead. We will never forget them. Now let's breathe a sigh of relief and move on. You know, there's one other triumph I need to tell you about. Since we are in Washington, D.C., let's jump forward a few years to 2010 and over to Arlington, Virginia, to the Pentagon. The Pentagon is the headquarters of the United States Department of Defense. Here, about 23,000 military and civilian employees work in an area that has five sides, five floors, and five rings of corridor per floor for a total of 17.5 miles. It's a very impressive place. And about once a month, a bus pulls up and discharges its passengers. The passengers are wounded soldiers brought from Walter Reed Hospital, and they're here for a day out. They are getting a tour, and what they don't know is their day is going to be something more than going from one monument to another. For waiting inside, lined up and down the quarters are employees of the Pentagon workforce. They are there to see the visitors, of which many of them are wounded. Some with obvious wounds, some with not so obvious, the type that can't be seen. Some need wheelchairs, some need assistance, an arm to lean on, some need a guide, for they have lost their sight. Each and every wounded soldier is provided an escort. Some of the soldiers look happy to be out. Some look up at the building in awe. And some are still suffering from their wounds, and they look serious, thoughtful. But all are greeted at the door with smiles. A three-star general meets them at the door. Nothing less will do. 
One man is in a wheelchair, and his little boy sits on his father's lap, oblivious to his father's wounds, for he's having a day out with his dad. The little boy looks up, he sees the three-star general, and shakes his hand, not caring who he is. He's out with his dad, and he's having fun. At a certain point, at the end of a corridor, all the visitors are gathered, and they begin to walk down a hallway, and applause breaks out and the tune Stars and Stripes Forever begin to play. You see, a small ensemble of musicians are playing their instruments. They're pushed up against the vending machines. The soldiers move slowly down the corridor. People step out to pat them on the shoulder or shake their hand as applause rolled up and down the hall. Out from the offices, people leave their work to pay homage to those who have sacrificed. No matter what part of the building, the wounded warriors are escorted. They are met with shouts of approval and applause. To their surprise, they are in a parade, in a triumph. On this day, it is not the general who leads the parade. This is not a triumph to pay tribute to the leader with a laurel held above his head. There is no chariot. This is not a tribute to display the spoils of war, either. This parade, this tribute, has one purpose, and one purpose only, to say thanks to the men and women who bear the wounds of war. And why shouldn't this be the way? Maybe this is how a tribute was meant to be. As they pass down the corridor, you can hear cheers coming up and down the hall. And the soldiers look dazed and are surprised at such a response. Some of them have their families with them for support. Mothers, fathers, aunts and sisters and brothers. Many of them have tears in their eyes as they pass this gauntlet of gratitude. On this day they will be provided lunch and the powerful, the general officers and their civilian secretaries, leaders of armies will come down and thank them in person for their service. Everywhere they go, the wounded warriors will be met by office workers who left the safety of their cubicles to give their thanks to those who put themselves in harm's way. This is a mini-triumph. Up and down the halls of power, a modern version evolved from the triumph conducted in ancient Rome so long ago. At the end of the day, they will be loaded back up onto the buses, and Pentagon employees will wave goodbye as the bus departs. It is sad to say another bus will come. As a kid, have you ever marched home from school imagining yourself in front of a great victory march? Have you ever seen yourself out in front with crowds gathered on the sides of the street shouting in happiness as you pass? Well, maybe some of you don't have to imagine it. Maybe some of you experienced it firsthand. After the break, we will talk to Stephen Saylor, the author of the Roma Sub Rosa mystery series starring Gordinius the Finder. Mr. Saylor will share with us what he knows about the Roman triumph. See you in a bit. Let's take a moment and listen to some music.
The following is a taped interview with Stephen Saylor. I was able to catch him at his home where I put to him various questions. You may notice that there is a point in the interview that I get a little excited while he's trying to make a point. It seems we had the same toy as a child. It was a great toy, a battery-powered galley ship that sailed across the floor as if powered by the oars that moved back and forth. The ship was a monoreme, meaning it had one set of oars. When I was a kid, we had a blue carpet throughout the entire house, which was our ocean sea. The stairs were carpeted as well, and it gave the illusion of a vast cascading waterfall coming down to my own personal enclosed front room ocean. My brother and I attacked islands, raided pirates, and destroyed sea-locked castles made from wooden blocks. Two lounge chairs in the living room were our pillars of Hercules. Enough of that. Let's go to the interview. And now, let's talk to Stephen Saylor. He's on the phone. Stephen is the author of the Roma Subarosa Historical Mysteries, featuring Gordianus, the finder. The action takes place in the Rome of Cicero and Julius Caesar. His latest book is The Triumph of Caesar, and I want you to know, Stephen, I've read all of your books, and it's a pleasure to have you on Ancient Rome Refocused. Stephen, how would you describe a triumph? What exactly is it? Uh, well, the Roman triumph. You know, I wrote my novel, The Triumph of Caesar. It's the latest in the series. Uh, because I've come to that point in history when Caesar finally gets to celebrate his four triumphs, which have been postponed because of the Civil War. Uh, the triumph was, of course, the apex of any general's or emperor's career. This was the chance to, to show what you've done, to bring it all home to Rome, to show the people what you've conquered, to boast about your accomplishments. And, of course, it's also, as with everything with the Romans, it's a religious ceremony. This is all in honor of Jupiter, who makes everything possible because he favors the Roman people. So it all ends, of course, at the temple of Jupiter with a sacrifice, um, as well as the execution of the captured uh, generals and dignitaries, and their death will be pleasing to Jupiter. Uh, they started with Romulus. Uh, he celebrated the first of the triumphs uh, when he was king of the city-state of Rome, which he had founded. And uh, after conquering one of the rival city-states, uh, he staged the first triumph. He did it on foot, walking through Rome. Subsequently, they did begin to ride a chariot. And by the time of Caesar, it's become a, a super spectacular event. There's not just the triumph, but there are days and days of games and theater, feasting and celebration. So the Roman Triumph is a, a huge event in the life of the Roman people. How do you do your research? Well, you know, I, this novel was kind of irresistible. I, uh, I, the, the, the course of the Roma Rosa series uh, sort of begins with the beginning of the end of the Roman Republic, the dictatorship of Sulla. I brought it forward now to very much the end of the Roman Republic, which is the dictatorship of Julius Caesar after a long civil war. And uh, oftentimes the, the research just sort of falls into my lap. I, think, I don't think anybody has previously done a novel specifically about the triumphs of Caesar when he staged his four triumphs in Rome. And 
the sources are just fantastic. We, we have Suetonius, we have Pliny, we have Plutarch, we have Theocassius, uh, we have Appian. They all write about the triumph, plus there are many other smaller details found uh, through the historians. So that we're able to reconstruct day by day exactly what happened at these four triumphs of Caesar. They were staged about a day apart. They didn't just uh, concentrate them all at, at one go. And uh, the historians were astounded by the things that happened, so naturally they wrote them down. So uh, for novelists like myself to just be able to go through those, to kind of make a chronology, to look at what's happening, who's in Rome, what's being celebrated, that's all just fantastic material, very larger than life. Um, so mainly just combing through the ancient sources. I think the fact that uh, Cleopatra is in town, that's always interesting. They have a big name in town. She gets to come on stage. Um, one of the reasons she's there, perhaps, is to see her sister, Arsinoe, with whom she had a civil war, is scheduled to be in the triumph as a prisoner and scheduled to be executed at the end. So Cleopatra appears to be anticipating that. Um, so the sources all just fall into place. Are there subjects in Roman history that are hard to talk about with modern audiences? Um, well, you know, the bloodthirstiness of the Romans always takes us aback a bit, because that's something that we have assiduously tried to breed out of our society, even though we are still warlike, we do still have violent entertainment. Uh, the Romans go places that most of us, you know, just don't even think about going. Uh, the Colosseum hasn't been built yet, so the great apex of, of the Roman uh, entertainment death as spectacle has not been reached yet. But certainly uh, the triumph is an expression of that. To see the enemy paraded uh, in chains and humiliated, to pelt them with fruit, and for everyone to enjoy that, uh, is not something that Americans would publicly allow themselves to do. Uh, we simply wouldn't, wouldn't allow that. And, of course, to see uh, the leader of the Gauls, Vercingetorix, is scheduled to finally be strangled and killed at the end of the triumph after being paraded publicly is total humiliation. They take a great deal of joy in, in the misfortune and the, uh, the vanquishing of others. And, once again, this comes back to the Roman religion. The, this, the reason this is happening is because what you're doing is pleasing to Jupiter and the other gods. And so they make all this possible. And one of the things that Jupiter and the other gods like to see is the humiliation of your enemies to their honor. We know that you helped us do this, Jupiter. We're publicly acknowledging it. We're going to publicly ex execute these people. So that's, that's one of the aspects where I think it's a bit of a reach for the modern American to get there psychologically. Um, so in showing these triumphs, uh, I, I try to show also the excitement of the audience, what they're getting out of this, what they expect from it. It's not just a publicity uh, stunt for Caesar. It's also a, uh, a, a very public and um, very participatory thing for the Roman people. How did you begin writing about Roman history? Well, you know, I grew up, uh, I was born in 1956. I grew up in the absolute heyday of uh, the old Hollywood spectacle that was set in the ancient world. Movies like uh, Ben-Hur, which of course won 11 Oscars, I think, the year I was born, uh, followed by movies like uh, Spartacus, uh, Cleopatra, the most expensive film ever made, with Elizabeth Taylor, which was a huge deal when I was a child. Uh, also, all those movies from Italy, and, uh, which starred Steve Reeves as Hercules and so forth. There was just a huge amount of this all around the world, uh, saturating the culture and the popular culture. 
so just as a boy growing up in a very small town in Texas, I, you know, I owned a battery-operated Roman galley as a boy. Oh, my, oh my gosh. Um, sir? <laughs> you know, this sir? was just everywhere. It's like sir? kids now have Star Wars or Avatar. We had ancient Rome. This, this was, you know, the world of wonder, the world of imagination. Was it? Was I? I just have to throw this in. Uh, uh, you said a battery-operated. Do you still have yours? Oh God, yes. <laughs> I have a. I think it came from. I think the uh, company was Remco. I, you know, I'm sure it came out of the Sears catalog. And that's the, all I know. And the oars actually moved yes, back and the forth. The oars moved. Mine is no longer operable. Most of the the oars are all gone. They were broken off. I have some of them. And the motor is not really working now, but you can see where to put the batteries, and it's mostly intact. It's a beautiful object. Uh, yeah, it's a, that's a, a treasured thing from my childhood. So it all starts there. Uh, and then later, when I became old enough to sort of study this um, legitimately, I, I studied history at the University of Austin, uh, or the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, I didn't start as, as a history major, but when I found I could actually do this full-time and I could get away with it, I thought, I just want to do nothing but take history courses. Uh, so I was very fortunate to have some really good profs. I studied Roman history, classics, and Greek history, Byzantine history. Um, so I became pretty well-grounded in all that. Left it behind for a while. Uh, but then I think my first trip to Rome was when I was about 29 years old, and my, my interest in all that was really reignited just by being in visceral contact with those ruins. I came back to where I was living in San Francisco, and I just wanted to be mentally in Rome all the time, and I wanted to read a murder mystery set in ancient Rome, because I was also getting very much into Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie at that time. And at that time, uh, the late 1980s, there, there really was not much of an historical mystery genre. That's a situation that's changed a great deal now. You can find sleuths in every time and place, and every famous person solved the crime in, in the mystery genre now. Um, but I wanted uh, a crime novel set in ancient Rome. I couldn't find one. I started reading The Murder Trials, a Cicero, translated by Michael Grant, a wonderful Penguin volume, uh, sort of for a true crime fix. And the very first oration was uh, Cicero defending a man accused of murdering his own father, the most terrible crime in ancient Rome. And I, I became riveted by that story. Many fascinating details are in there. The politics factor into it. Uh, I thought, I think I can make a novel out of this. And I think a year or two later, I had my first novel, Roman Blood, ready to show to a, an editor. And from that point on, for me, it's just uh, that's been what I've been doing. I've been writing these murder mysteries set in ancient Rome. Do you see any similarities between then and now? Well, very many. I mean, there, there are some things that don't change about human nature, especially the bad parts. Uh, the venal uh, behavior, the politics, the cutthroat uh, attitude. And, you know, from Rome, uh, one of the reasons that Rome is so popular and so fertile a ground for movies and novels and popular entertainment is that we have so much material and so many kinds of material uh, from the literary sources, from the visual sources. We don't just have histories. We don't just have speeches that were uh, in the Senate and, and in courtrooms, as valuable as those are, but we also have erotic poetry. We have cookbooks. Uh, we have all kinds of engineering manuals. We have so many things that we can get our hands on and really sort of have a touch-feel experience about what the ancient Romans thought, what was important to them, how they expressed themselves. Um, and fortunately, all of these works, 
on virtually everything has been translated uh, starting in the 1800s. Uh, scholars are still working on all of that. It's, it's an immense amount of material, but so much of it has been made available in so many ways, uh, not just the literary, but also the archaeology. We're so fortunate to have had the entire city of Pompeii preserved for us. So much of Rome has been excavated. New things are being found still on the forum every year. There's Yahoo headlines. Uh, just uh, a couple of years ago, supposedly the Lupercal uh, on the Palatine, where supposedly Romulus and Remus were suckled by the she-wolf, and this was made into a monument by Augustus underground. Supposedly they found that. I'm a little dubious until they excavate, but there's still exciting things like that happening. So um, we're able to really kind of see ourselves in the Roman. Uh, in many, many ways. It's a very multifaceted experience when you start researching them. Rome was a dangerous time. How does your hero stay alive? Well, one of my explanations for this, well, first of all, lifespan in the ancient world, many people think it must have been intrinsically shorter. But in fact, uh, people were able to live as long then as they can live now. We know, for example, that Cicero's wife lived to be 100. Now, that was a notable thing. That's why it's recorded in a book. But it was possible for people to live to be 100 or maybe even older. Uh, physically, that was possible. If you had a, a, a good life, if you weren't worked really hard, if you had a good constitution, obviously, uh, most important, good teeth. You've got to have the teeth. Um, so people could live that long. Um, in Gordianus's case, in spite of the fact that he courts danger because of his, uh, his livelihood, he does go out sort of snooping and looking for the truth and digging up the dirt about people, uh, meeting poisoners, meeting assassins uh, on, on taverns along the Tiber and so forth. So he puts himself in harm's way quite often, and he has uh, faced near death on more than one occasion. But as he himself uh, explains it, apparently the gods are interested in the story of his life. And to him, that's an explanation of why he is still around. The, the, the Romans really believed in fate and fortune. And uh, they didn't entirely think that it was all up to you. There were larger forces at work, above you, all around you, maybe protecting you, maybe trying to harm you. This is why they propitiate the gods. This is why they try to ward off the evil eye and so forth. Um, but if the gods were on your side, and most important, the goddess Fortuna, of fortune, uh, if things went your way, then uh, life life was easy. Uh, this is why the dictator uh, Sulla called himself Felix, the fortunate, because everything worked out for Sulla. How did that happen? Uh, as wild a life as he lived, as much danger as he faced, uh, he all everything went his way. And Caesar was virtually the same way right up until the last act. Um, so in Gordianus's case, the gods are interested in the story of his life. To me, that translates as, as long as the readers are interested in the story of his life, there will be more volumes. Um, so he's, uh, he just keeps getting through these scrapes. Well, that brings up an interesting point. On your next book, can you give us any clues? Uh, well, I'm, um, the book I'm working on right now is the next Gordianus book, which is going to be a prequel that is going to go back to his younger days, and uh, it's going to take him to see the seven wonders of the world. Um, most of them are still extant in his lifetime. This is about the time 
that we were getting the official lists of seven wonders were being compiled by various poets and, and engineers and so forth. And people actually took these itineraries. They would go and see the seven wonders of the world. It was possible to see them all in about the span of a year if you travel quickly. Um, so that's going to take him to see the great uh, temples. It's going to take him to Olympia, Halicarnassus. Uh, it's going to take him as far as Babylon, where there are really only ruins of, of the gardens and the walls, and ultimately to Alexandria, the lighthouse of Pharos, and, of course, the, the uh, pyramids in Egypt. So that's what I'm working on now. Researching that is, is a lot of fun. Of course, it's a topic everyone finds interesting. Uh, and to sort of have Gordianus be a younger man will also be fun for me because we sort of get to, I, I, I get to sort of relive his youth and my own perhaps. And we'll find out a few of the, uh, the origin of Gordianus, which has been sort of shrouded in mystery all through the series. Um, I should say outside the uh, Roma Sabrosa mystery series, I have been, uh, I've been embarked on a whole other enterprise, which is these big massive historical novels about Rome itself, kind of in the vein of James Michener or Edward Rutherford, who writes the big London books and so forth. Um, the first one was called Roma. It's about the first thousand years of Rome, uh, a family saga that sort of transpires from uh, the ancient days of the trade routes along the Tiber, uh, when there was no city at all at Rome, just a, a little uh, settlement, uh, up through the age of Caesar. So you see well, the time of Hannibal, and before that, Romulus and Remus, and so forth. And uh, the next book I'll have out, which will be September of 2010, is a follow-up to that, which is called Empire. The same family is being taken forward through time, not that, that big a span, only about 180 years, because the material is so rich once you start having the reign of Augustus up through the reign of Hadrian, which is the absolute height of the empire. So that's the next book that will actually be published, is Empire. What Roman history or what Roman history novelist most influenced you? Um, not to say a Roman history novel, but the historical fiction set in the ancient world. Certainly, I was very influenced uh, in my younger days by Mary Renault, who, uh, when I was young, was a big best-selling international author. Uh, she started with her novels about Alexander, uh, Fire from Heaven, uh, followed by The Persian Boy, and um, she also wrote novels about Theseus, uh, many other aspects of the ancient Greek world. That was her fascination. And uh, those novels were just superbly written. They really took you back to the ancient Greek world. And uh, I think I read them when I was a teenager. So they had a big influence on me. The very idea of writing historical fiction about the ancient world, was, I, I, I got that from her. I've also read some of Robert Graves. I've never actually read the I, Claudius novels. I've read his novels, uh, uh, Hercules, My Shipmate, once again about ancient Greece and several others. Um, I don't read a lot of historical fiction. I think historical fiction, like science fiction, tends to date pretty quickly. So that nowadays when you read an historical novel that was written in the 1950s, say, in America, and quite a few novels were written in the 50s, set in the ancient world, they tend to tell you more about 1950s America than they tell you about ancient Rome. Uh, just the whole value set, if you think of the movie Ben-Hur, that's really kind of a psycho-history of the United States at the time and, and their value system. So that uh, writing historical fiction is really fraught with that peril, trying trying to find something that's timeless, 
that's not going to date, that isn't really about you and your times. Um, I try to transcend that to some way in my own novels. I don't know how successful I am. But uh, I would say as far as uh, other big influences, um, I have to say the historian Michael Grant, who uh, once again, when I was growing up as a boy in the 60s, Michael Grant already had, I don't know how many books in print, uh, but quite a few. I would go to the small library. I grew up in the town of Goldthwaite, Texas, population 1,200. And as I began to be interested in something more serious about ancient Rome than, say, my, uh, my Roman galley and seeing movies, I would go to the library, and lo and behold, whatever subject I was looking for, whether it was a biography of Cleopatra or Nero or a book about the ancient historians, it seemed like Michael Grant had written a book about this. Oh. Very prolific author. And uh, I guess I, his quality then struck me as very fine, and it does even now. As much history as I've read, as many historians as I've read, when I read Michael Grant, I just feel so comfortable uh, in his scholarship. I feel so informed by his wisdom. He's no longer with us, but um, I'm actually dedicating Empire, my latest novel, to his memory. Um, we corresponded a very small amount. I never actually met him, I'm sorry to say. But when I was uh, writing Empire, I, one of the things that was really stumping me, this was getting me away from my comfort zone of the Roman Republic, where the Roma Sorosa novels with Guardianus take place, uh, and into the Empire, which is kind of a different animal as far as the politics and the kind of history you read. It's all about the emperors. It's all about the psychotherapy of the emperors. You get away from the, the sort of politics of the Republic. And I was having a little trouble getting a grip on the, the thought world of the Romans in these early imperial days. Their thought world is so fraught with superstition, astrology, of course the ancient Roman religion, which is still holding on, uh, ideas about fate and fortune, uh, and the, of course the uh, Stoicism, philosophy is very important, uh, man's place in the world, submission to fate and so forth. But I was having a hard time threading this needle, trying to understand why, for example, astrology was so important. The Roman emperors themselves accepted the importance of astrology. They frequently ban all the astrologers in Rome because if you can get hold of the emperor's horoscope, you might bring him down. This is like a state secret. Uh, Hadrian wouldn't even allow anybody else to cast his horoscope. He did it himself. It's, this was too private and important a matter. But I was just having a hard time understanding why the Romans were so taken with this Babylonian practice of astrology, as well as many other crazy cults that get started around this time. And uh, I read a couple of books by Michael Grant about this specific period. One is called The Climax of Rome, and the other is called The World of Rome. And in many ways, they are companion volumes. They were written a number of years apart, but they cover exactly the same ground, which is uh, the first centuries and the apex of the Roman Empire under people like Hadrian and Marcus Aurelius. And I have to say, Michael Grant once again came to my rescue, as he did with his translations of, of uh, Cicero's murder trials, as he did when I was a child and I was just looking for you know good books about anything to do with ancient Rome. With those two books, The Climax of Rome and The World of Rome, he lays out the Roman thought world in a way that I found so comprehensible, so compelling, so convincing, that uh, I just have to say Michael Grant is by far my favorite historian of the ancient world. I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been really great, very informative for everybody listening. And uh, please have a, have a wonderful rest of the day. Well, it's been a pleasure. 
podcasts about ancient Rome, a subject which is still important today. On the next episode of Ancient Rome Refocused, Episode 5, we will interview Brian Dorries, director of the Theater of War, the New York-based acting company. They are now going about the country performing Sophocles' play titled Ajax. If we talk about the Romans, we must talk about the Greeks. Mr. Dorries, who translated it from the original Greek, is a bit of an explorer and discovered new meaning to this ancient Greek tragedy. You have to hear the next episode. It's fascinating stuff. The play Ajax has something to say to all of us, but especially to the soldier. I want to thank Bradley for his comments on the Ancient Rome Refocused Facebook page. I want to thank Adam of Illinois for his critique on iTunes. I want to thank uh, Debbie of London for her correspondence. And I appreciate her insight on some things that we should have on a future episode of Ancient Rome Refocused. I'd like to do a special shout-out to Darko, who uh, lived as a boy near the town of the ancient place called Sirminium. Uh, that's S-I-R-M-I-U-M. That's a province near Serbia, and he actually played in the Roman ruins part of the world where Roman emperors were born. I'd like to give a special hello to the blog Forgotten Classics, especially to Julie D., uh, which she talked about a uh, post that I made, and uh, she told others to check out my podcast. Uh, she says that she's thoroughly enjoying the Ancient Rome Refocused podcast, and she goes on to say that now that I see uh, his blog, it is just as entertaining, informative, and thought-provoking. Uh, her uh, her blog can be found on hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com. Lately, I've been getting a lot of visits in my blog from the Happy Catholic. Uh, looking into it, I discovered that my post, Walking the Same Path as Sandaled Feet, uh, wound up on their site. It's about my visit to the Roman Forum and some of my observations. I want to thank that blog uh, very much for uh, posting my article. Uh, the Happy Catholic can be reached at http colon uh, forward slash forward slash happycatholic.blogspot.com. Please leave us a comment on iTunes or come to the blog at http colon forward slash forward slash at ancientromerefocused.org. Just remember, Ancient Rome Refocused is one word. Also, come to our Facebook page. Hey, come talk to each other argue, trade ideas, or tell us what your interests are. If you want to be on the show, call our hotline at 206-350-7517. You have about five minutes. Leave a comment, tell us about a book on ancient history that you enjoyed, or tell us about your visit to Rome, Greece, or Egypt. Call now. The number is 206-350-7517. See you next time on Ancient Rome Refocused.